You're listening to the Today's Family Lawyer podcast, the leading source of daily news and insight for family law practitioners in England and Wales. Sign up to our free weekly newsletter at todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk and subscribe to hear all the latest news and views from across the family law sector. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello, welcome along to the latest Today's Family Lawyer podcast. Today I am talking about a very topical discussion, which is delays in the family court. I'm joined by Natasha Grand, who is the head of family, recently appointed head of family at Wilson's LLP. It's lovely to have you on the podcast, Natasha. Thank you very much indeed for joining. I'm delighted to be here to talk about something so important and topical at the moment. It's not a lot of fun talking about court delays. Listeners to the Family Law podcast will know that we have a Today's Wills and Probate podcast. They have their own delays in terms of the probate process. So it's a a familiar theme for lawyers. In the first instance, I said that you're recently appointed to uh, the head of the team at uh, Wilson's. Tell us a bit about yourself. What what areas do you practice in and specialise in and uh, and what do you do at, at Wilson's? So I'm head of the family team. We cover um, children work, um, finance work, um, Tolato matters and yes, anything to do with the family life and unfortunately the the breakdown of the family. Um, We have the expertise in-house for. And what do you specialise in in your own practice? Generally speaking, financial work. So um, cases that might involve a complicated trust um, or a business often have sort of complicated structures. Um, I specialise in dealing with that both in and out of court and in private children work. I've done a lot of uh, relocation work, whether that's internal um, relocation and um, out of the jurisdiction. So I guess a lot of your work brings you into contact with the courts pretty regularly. (laughs) Very regularly. Um, There's a lot of concerns at the moment. Um, I mean, applications not being issued for months. I've had cases recently that have been vacated due to judicial availability um, and those were two to three day final hearing um, in children in private children matters um, where we had to scrabble around and organise a arbitration which we were able to do which was fantastic but it's 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 very difficult at the moment. What's your experience then in terms of the current state of play with delays? You, you talked about the fact that you've had hearings delayed. How does it impact you and your role and how does it impact you in practice? I mean, clients basically want to know how long is it going to take and how much is it going to cost? Mm -hmm. And the difficulty of that is that we're reliant on the third party, if you like, of the court of how long is it going to take? And I think before maybe a few years ago, it was you could be quite positive about timeframes. But now, you you know, 47 weeks, I think, is the latest uh, stats that have come out in the January to March quarter for private law children cases and saying to a client well it could be about a year um it is very very difficult I think we just have to be honest (laughs) how do you manage those client expectations how I personally manage them is by always being really upfront and realistic with the clients I think them knowing that you are chasing the best that you can with the courts 
and knowing that how important you view their matter and the impact that it's having on them and their family. Um, it is difficult because you are in this sort of email processing time <laughs> with the course you used to be able to pick up the phone and speak to someone and it's yeah. much harder now but equally on the other level I know how overworked and understaffed the courts are so it, what is not nice is to say well it, you can't blame the courts but you just have to be very clear about how long something could take but what are you actively doing to try to chase it up it's quite challenging because otherwise you just end up finger pointing all the time yes exactly yes exactly and that doesn't help anyone in family cases what's your take on how these delays have come about are we still experiencing a hangover from the pandemic i think it's a mix i think the pandemic is the very obvious answer um it altered successful timelines i think in family law cases which had been established in 2016 for the disposal of cases. Um, I think the less obvious answer is the nature of family law work itself, particularly children work, timing is everything. And what I mean by that is a case that sits in the list um, does not sit still on its factual matrix. So as family law reflects the life of a family, what can happen is if there's an initial delay, of course, new issues arise in a case. And you have that combined with the old issues and then the case might have to be remanaged or adjourned off to deal with um, the fresh evidence. It might be that you have to instruct an expert, for example, and then that sort of time frame has got to be factored in, which can cause further delays. So I think, yes, I think the nature of family work in itself and I think what's happened with COVID and, of course, the removal of legal aid, in 2013 are these positive timelines that you had. There's been a sort of a snowball effect, which has, with the underfunding of family work, everything has snowballed. So lots of different factors, underfunding, COVID, and nature of family law work itself. We're chatting in August and it's been on the news about the latest strikes that the NHS have been on. And they've talked about it as a similarly kind of snowball effect, just yeah. underinvestment, real misunderstanding of what the medical community has been through and is going through. I mean, is that a, a useful comparison? I think it is a useful comparison. I, The Law Society recently made suggestions um, which were, you know, obviously putting the onus on the government saying, the government needs to increase funding for well-paid and full-time judges and then they said basically what we we need to do as practitioners say assist negotiated settlements refer clients to mediation and better manage client expectations but we are doing that <laughs> already and um it's difficult because some cases just require court intervention but i do think there are other things that we can do as practitioners I want to ask you quite specifically about two particular things that you've talked about there. One is mediation, and, and obviously there's there's a lot of talk about the opportunity to introduce mandatory mediation. Yes. You've got a, a view on that. There's been a real mixed review of, of that. My personal view, which I'm very happy to give, is compulsory mediation at the beginning of a case is, is not the answer. Mediation at its heart is a process where 
the parties must want to engage with it. So it's a voluntary process. And I feel if that voluntary aspect was removed, that parties won't engage in the process in the way they would need to in order for it to be successful. Um, and I think as well, the government have ignored all the other you know, ADR <laughs> processes, which would be good. So I think it's quite a tunnel visioned um, approach. And I think that's been generally the response of um, the family law legal community. And I think it's correct. And then what about video? Because that's been introduced. It has its place. Uh, I mean, people have talked about its value in terms of the first hearings. Have you sort of had, had much experience of, of using video and, and how have you found it in, in your own work? A huge amount of experience of using video, both through lockdown and now lots of hearings are video hearings. Um, I think it's very effective for case management hearings, direction hearings. Um, I think it is very difficult sometimes for FDRs or final hearings because I think it's sometimes the interaction between people and you know somebody giving evidence the nuances can be lost um, but that's a personal view and it's not one that will be shared by everyone but um, mm. that's my experience. It, it's certainly that the nuance bit is certainly a, a view that I've heard a number of times but I, I, I definitely sort of think that the technology is there mm. and there is the start of a acceptance of it and as you yeah. say certainly for the procedural hearings it just mm. makes sense of course I do think that there are certain hearings where you need that feeling of you are in court this is extremely serious you, you need that sort of feeling of going into the courtroom um, but I think those tend to be as I said fi final hearings really do you recognize the sentiment about people wanting to have their day in court that was something that was shared with me in a previous podcast I did okay. where they felt that the two sides, and we talked about mediation there and the, and the necessity for both sides to want to go to mediation in order for that to be successful. The flip side of that is that both sides might want to go to court to have their day. I can't think of a family lawyer that I don't know who will do everything they can to keep the matter out of court. I think it's a bit of a myth that we push clients towards court but ultimately some things just can't be settled without a final determination being made um this is something that obviously could be done in arbitration um instead of um in the court system in arbitration you can you know pick your judge and it, the time scales are much quicker i think our responsibility as practitioners is to move away from this kind of adversarial idea because family law is about family life it's very personal it's very difficult it's hard enough going through the process but but yes some cases do have to go to court and clients might feel that they're having their day in court but it's often just because the issue can't be settled despite the best efforts of the practitioner without a judge making the decision and some stuff is just so complicated it needs it needs that court time really you mentioned about the fact that the sort of mandatory mediation ignores a number of other alternative dispute resolution oh. routes what in your view could the profession be doing to do more to keep matters out of court and thereby reduce the pressure on the courts well a colleague of mine very helpfully directed me towards um, the president of the family division lecture which was um, a high sheriff's lecture in 2022 where he flagged joe o'sullivan's book 
which is almost anything but the family court, which I have put aside for my reading. I'm soon to go on holiday, so it is on my reading list. Um, so basically in there, she lists options which can be given to clients and she'd be given at the outset. And I thought this was really interesting because in no particular order, these are do-it-yourself do or kitchen table arrangements, mediation, hybrid or lawyer-assisted mediation, child-inclusive mediation, collaborative law, um, roundtable arbitration, arbitration slash mediation, online services who, you know, can assist with the court forms. Um, there's one couple, one lawyer model and early neutral evaluation and private financial dispute resolution appointments. So it's, it's quite a list, but I think that the overall point is at the beginning of a case, you should really consider which one might be appropriate um, for your client and not be afraid to push ourselves to try something that we may not have done lots of you know uh, doing arbitration in children matters is something that I've only really started doing you know in the last the sort of year or two of my career but you you just have to sort of crack on with it and I think it's also being aware that as a case progresses keeping all these options in mind um, because even as practitioners we quite often get very familiar with one aspect and I think it's sort of being very open to that and I, you know I think that can try to reduce the burden on the family courts if we consider all of these options um, so I find that very helpful and reflective um, for my practice. I guess it boils down to an element of training mm. actually understanding as you say what the, what each of those opportunities presents and, and it's very easy isn't it in, in any line of work and it's very mm. easy to criticize lawyers but it's, in any line of work we can get very tunnel visioned in terms of this is how we've done it before so this, this is how we'll do it again well, there's stuff that is happening in the family legal community I mean it's not just us you know the public law outline has been relaunched this year so they're trying to push through case management um, a template for the case management of proceedings trying to bring public law cases back within the 26th week time scale in private law cases you've got pathfinder pilots running I mean there is a lot happening and there's a government consultation isn't there supporting early resolution of private family law arrangements there's a lot going on as you know not just us trying to reduce it overall and but the statistics are really frightening I mean I had another look before we were coming on our podcast so I looked at um, private law children work and you know, back in 2014, it was sort of around 17 weeks or something mm -hmm. from the beginning to the end. And then in 2018, uh, it was around 26 weeks. And be the beginning of the pandemic, it was sort of creeping up into the early 30s. And then now we're in 47 weeks. I mean, it's the jump is just terrifying. Um, but we're doing stuff as practitioners and the government is is doing stuff and I'm hopeful <laughs> that it's going to be addressed. We've talked about the impact that delays have on you, on your practice and on, on the firm. I mean, not least, you've got issues with being able to bill and uh, whip and, and all that kind of stuff. But in practice, how is it affecting families? How does it affect your relationship with the family? Uh, how does it affect the children? I mean, it's a very impressionable age in a lot of cases. What's your experience of how it affects the family and affects children? On the ground, it can mean that families are left waiting for a decision over schooling um, or a decision over what the child arrangements look like. Or also, you know, people are waiting to have contact with their child um, who, you know, contact has been withheld from the other side. 
the impact it, it is absolutely terrible. It's detrimental to um, the children's welfare. And I think the, as I said earlier, I think the worrying thing, ignoring <laughs> the impact on us, because what really matters and the people who are at the heart of the matter or the families that we are dealing with is the whole case can change by the time it actually gets within the court system. Right. So what they started off applying for, there can be fresh issues. So I think that could be so incredibly frustrating when you're then sat explaining to them, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, but you might need some expert evidence, or I'm really sorry that the court feels it needs to have a directions hearing about this now or we're not going to get an answer on this until we've you know had the child impact report out for example I mean it's incredibly frustrating I'm really pleased to be able to talk about it and bring the awareness because it makes you it does make you angry on their behalf um, but I think it's it's good because everyone I know in the profession is very passionate about the work we do and um, it's important I think that we're just honest with our clients about that it just doesn't sound as simple as saying we've got to work better as lawyers to keep matters out of court. There's far more nuance to it than that. Well, it's I mean, the answer is really the underfunding, isn't it? I mean, the, you know, Law Society really made some good suggestions, but we just needed, um, you know, more funding for judges um we need more funding for these kind of i suppose early early evaluation of cases that people need to be able to have funding to access these out of court anything but the family court options um and that just isn't in place i know we've reported on this rise in the number of private fdr instructions is that something that you've seen in in your own practice Absolutely. And what has been positive is actually, I mean, we work with fantastic chambers who are really clear about their pricing. And I've seen it become an option for couples who it wasn't an option before. We've got amazing counsel who are now training to do private FDRs. And there's just a lot more um, better priced <laughs> private FDR judges out there now where couples um, can pay and afford to to go to them and that certainly is something that I've seen a rise in. Um, it's more really, affordable then? Yeah it's more affordable I mean it's, it's not affordable for everyone but I, I think sort of the people in the middle where it may not have been affordable before there has certainly been an effort for people who may be more junior and have less years under their belt but are amazing barristers who can act as uh, private law judges training and now offering it so that has been a shift in the profession that I've personally noticed and you know which is fantastic. Are there other opportunities like that that exist around taking something that was once kind of just as read as going to the courts that now we could find an alternative route for? Well there's arbitration you know I've used personally when I've had a, a private a final hearing in private law children which has been vacated um, and I think that is an option and actually the chambers are really getting on board with how quickly sometimes we have to organise something and again I think just all credit to our profession because I find that the barristers are making themselves available when I'm told they're not available in order to take something that's come out of the list. So I think there's this collective responsibility, knowing what is going on for our clients, 
to try to address it the way we can. And then, of course, the responsibility has to flip back on the government to address it in the way they can. And it's a perfect time. I mean, the election, we're told, what, next summer? It's going to be before the American election. So there's lots of time for people to make their pitch as to yeah. you know how they're going to get people who are suffering through the delays in the family courts and the legal profession to vote for them. So. I think it's, it's really interesting what you said and your own self-awareness about the fact that you recently done arbitration cases with children, which you hadn't necessarily previously done. And that open-mindedness to alternatives feels really important, not just in terms of dealing with the family court delays. That, that That's an issue in itself, but just more widely in terms of better outcomes for families. We've been chatting about affordability, about representation and and the ability of people to to be better represented. One thing that we've not covered is court delays connected to litigants in person. Now, I I know you've got some interesting stats about that because we've, again, we've certainly reported on this massive rise in litigants in person. What's your view of whether that has an impact on delays in the court? I think it certainly does have an impact. Um, Judges and us as practitioners, if we have a litigant in person and a judge, if they have two litigants in person, obviously we need to make sure that they're not being penalised and not having legal representation. So there will be a lot of time spent explaining the process. Um, I, I will certainly be explaining the process if I've got somebody across me because basically what you want to do if somebody's acting in person across from you is um you still want everything to progress mm-hmm. but you know it's um of course it does take longer um with the removal of legal aid um in 2013 this had serious repercussions basically meaning that people a lot of people could no longer afford legal representation um i think the stats from 20 23 I think the proportion of cases that sort of reached the final order where neither party had legal representation was around 40 percent I think for the same period um in 2013 it was 14 (laughs) percent so you can see that difference it's just incredible and I think the proportion of cases where both parties have legal representation this year was around 18%. And then in January to March 2013, prior to the removal of legal aid, it was 41%. So this is obviously not assisting the delays in the family courts. And yes, it's something that the government needs to address. I mean, it's hard for us to address as practitioners. Um, again, it's something for them to address, I think. And election coming up again, they can do it next year. <laughs> One of the really interesting things about running three publications, one in conveyancing, one in wills and probate and one in family, is that each of these areas of law have got their own legislative imperatives. The home moving process is now nearly 30, 40 weeks, something like that. Uh, we're talking about court delays being of a similar kind of ilk. And you're right, the election's coming, the government have got these yep. uh, have got these responsibilities. It would be very interesting to see uh, where they uh, where they place their emphasis. Mm. We're fast moving to the end of the time we have together. I, I, I 
I know that this is a subject that you're really passionate about, Natasha. So thank you so much for, for joining and for sharing your insight. Thank you very much for having me. The Today's Family Lawyer podcast is available on your preferred podcast provider. It's also available on todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk. My thanks to Natasha. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. You're listening to the Today's Family Lawyer podcast, the leading source of daily news and insight for family law practitioners in England and Wales. Sign up to our free weekly newsletter at todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk and subscribe to hear all the latest news and views from across the family law sector. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.